Sometimes a preacher looks at the clock and looks at his sermon and feels a bit like an Egyptian mummy pressed for time. Anyway, sorry. Sorry for that. I apologize. Figured I'd give you a little humor before we jump in. But uh, growing up on the farm in Illinois, I dis- we discovered when I was about 10 years old that I had asthma that was only a problem around grain dust and straw dust and hay dust. And so poor me, I couldn't bale straw and I couldn't participate in those activities. But while my brothers and my father and my grandpa were out bailing, I was given other tasks. It's not that I got to sit around and do nothing. Um, And what I usually got to do, uh, got to do, yes, that I, I had the privilege of doing was being the thistle exterminator. Now, I don't think there's any thistles here in the valley. They're a weed. I hear that once you get out of the valley, maybe you can find them. If you're from the Midwest, you're probably familiar with them. They're a, a weed that grows tall, and they're, they're pokey. I don't know what to call the pokes on them. They're not thorns. They're not spikes. I, but they're, they're pokey, one way or another. Uh, they got purple blossoms, but they're a pest. They're a nuisance on the farm. They're not good for animals. They're not good for people. They're not good for crops. And so while my family was out bailing, I was given the thistle exterminator job. And it looked different over time. I started out with a spade with a long blade on it. And I would chop the uh, thistle stalk down and then dig up the root. And that was one way I did it. There was another time, I, and this didn't last very long, but my dad gave me a burlap sack and a pair of scissors and I was supposed to cut the blossoms off of them over the entire farm. That didn't last very long. Um, and, but my favorite was spraying them. It was the easiest. Started out with a little two and a half gallon pump sprayer. Would, Dad showed me how to mix the water with the chemicals and only spray the thistle. This will kill corn. Don't spray the corn. You know, and uh, I would walk around and take care of it. I eventually graduated to a backpack sprayer. That felt pretty cool. My favorite was the four-wheeler mounted sprayer. It had a large boom on the back, not that I ever used it because I was just spot spraying with the uh, wand, but I felt really cool. Uh, then, it was, then it was enjoyable, then it was a fun job. It was also a lot quicker. Weeds are a problem on a farm, aren't they? And they're even a problem here in the valley. I have a yard that is literally just rocks and I cannot keep the weeds out. It's ridiculous. I don't know how it happens. I, I guess it's the neighbor's trees blow in their seeds, and then I'm always trying to pull up and spray and burn off these weeds, and I can't get rid of them. Weeds grow quickly, don't they? And they're tough to kill. They're persistent. In our lives, I would like to talk about a spiritual weed. That is the weed of bitterness. Oftentimes we suffer in life, and I could, we could have a bunch of whiteboards up on the platform this morning, and I could take time filling each whiteboard with the ways all of us in this room have suffered in our entire life, whether you're a six-month-old, or whether you are a 106-month-old, or wait, 106 years old, uh, we've all suffered, haven't we? We all suffer pain as a part of this life, and we could spend until evening listing those out. You know you suffer, I know I suffer. 
But oftentimes when we suffer, we're tempted to become bitter because something bad has happened to me. And what is the first response? I want to find who is to blame. And even among Christians, I find this is too often. But that finger of blame gets pointed at God, doesn't it? God is at fault for my suffering. At least that's what we think. We begin to question his goodness. We question his power. We question his motives. And that seed of bitterness gets planted in our hearts. It doesn't take much for that seed to grow and spread roots. It's icy roots around our hearts spread its tendrils throughout our souls. And we've quickly become a Christian bound by our bitterness And Satan has won another sidelined Christian who can't overcome their bitterness. That bitterness grows just like a weed, doesn't it? It's hard to kill, just like a weed. And bitterness can be very persistent, just like a weed. But in the face of our suffering, to prevent bitterness, to look beyond my bitterness, God wants me... God wants you and God wants us to trust his sovereignty, even in the face of our suffering. God wants us to trust his sovereignty. If you come away with nothing else, please remember that. God wants you to trust his sovereignty, even in our suffering. And you say, I've suffered a lot. How You don't know, Pastor Chris, the ways I've suffered. How in the world could I trust God's sovereignty while I suffer? This this pain is too much. I can't trust God's sovereignty. I'll give you three strategies today. Now, there's many more. We'll we'll look in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. So if you would like to turn there, this would be a good time. Ruth, chapter 1. We will look at three strategies to trust God's sovereignty even in the midst of our suffering. God wants us to trust his sovereignty. We'll uh, take a moment to read through Ruth chapter 1. The author of Ruth says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and she and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way and returned unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return to thy mother's, to her, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, surely we will return 
with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay with would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister, sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee. Or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee in me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they, they two went until they came to... Bethlehem, And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, as they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. God wants us to trust his sovereignty. And we learn, too late in this narrative, this historical narrative, people who really did exist and really did suffer, two separate responses to their suffering. The book of Ruth is set in the context of the book of Judges. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now the book of Judges precedes Ruth. The book of Judges was a spiritually dark time. If you were with us when we studied Judges in Sunday school several months ago, you learned that. It ended on a very, very dark note with gross immorality and sin and civil war. If you look just at right before Ruth at the very last book of Judges, you'll see in verse 25 of chapter 21, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We think our culture today is bad. Sometimes we get time-locked. I can assure you that the culture in Judges was far worse. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. It was a spiritually dark time, but it was also a physically dangerous time. We noticed there was a famine. Now, in the book of Judges, there is no reference to a famine, so it's hard to place Ruth exactly where in the book of Judges, but we do know it was during that time period. And one thing that we can learn from the opening few verses, uh, verse 1 through 6 of Ruth is that we can expect suffering. That's, in fact, our first strategy to expect suffering. Now, in this 
spiritually dark time, in this physically dangerous time, we meet a very ordinary man. Notice in verse 1 it says, a certain man. Not a man of great importance, not a, nothing special about this man and his family. They're just a regular family. A man and his wife and his two sons. And then we learn their names in verse 2. The man is Elimelech, the wife is Naomi, the sons are Malon and Chilion. And they leave Judah to search for respite because of this famine. Now famines, there are places in the world today where famines are as dangerous and as fearful as they were in, in this day. We don't really experience that here in the States. But a famine in a land that relies on subsistence farming was a very dangerous thing. And if you could leave, you did. Uh, this is not just new to Ruth here. We know Abraham, when he was in the land of Canaan, there was a famine and he left. He sojourned to get relief from Egypt. We know even Jacob found relief in Egypt when his son Joseph was ruling there. We learned that in Genesis. It was very common for people to leave home when there was a famine. And this is what this family did. We're just looking to be able to survive. Elimelech leads his family the best way he knows how. And then in verse 3, we see that tragedy strikes. Now, this wasn't a man looking for trouble. It was just a man doing ordinary things. And yet, for some unknown reason, he died. And notice how it says, Naomi's and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Now, it's worded that way because Naomi is the focus of chapter 1. And I would even argue Naomi is the main character in the book of Ruth. Now, we often think it's Ruth, and she is an important character. In fact, she is the one that best represents Christ-like, godly love in the book, which is why it was named after her. But the main struggle that gets resolved in the book of Ruth is Naomi's. It's her heart that grows. It's her that has the struggle that God resolves. So it, we're focusing now on Naomi, and she's left of her husband, robbed, if you will, of him at least from her perspective. In verse 4, it says, Her sons took wives from the children of Moab, and they lived another ten years, but then her sons died, in verse 5, and she is left without them. This is tragic suffering. I've never lost a spouse. I don't want to. I can't imagine. I know many here have. And after many more years of marriage than mine, and that's tragedy. And what's worse than losing her husband is she loses her only sons. So not only is there that family tragedy, but there's also the economic tragedy. The husband and the sons provide for the mother. She's left without her loves, the ones she loves, and she's left without provision and protection in a very dangerous world. And she has very in a very real way, she suffered. She suffered a lot, suffered loss. Many people who are commentators and who read the book of Ruth would like to attribute the suffering to sin and say Elimelech sinned by taking his family out into the land of Moab. And I would disagree. Obviously, there's good people on both sides. As I mentioned, there was good standards for even the church, the, the 
fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all did that as well. It's never mentioned to be a sin. I think Elimelech dying is simply a tragic circumstance that sets the backdrop for the rest of the book of Ruth. As were the deaths of her sons, not necessarily that they were doing anything wrong, and maybe it is judgment, God does do that in judgment, but there's no indication of it here. One author said, I think, well, the story of Ruth is not a story about sin and judgment. It's a story about divine compassion and deliverance. And this tragedy is simply that, a tragedy for which the book of Ruth shines so brightly as an opportunity for us to learn about God's sovereignty in our suffering. And finally, in verse 6, we see that the Lord visited his people. Naomi says it's time to go back home. Why? Because she had heard the Lord had visited his people. Now, this is not just a casual visit like, say, I were to drop by your house after a, on a Monday and ask you if you watched the football game and talk about that. That's not the kind of visit. It's more of the visit that maybe Pastor Dave would give to you if you were in the hospital. I know he's very good at hospital visits. He would visit you and say, how are you doing? And is there anything I can do for you? Can I, can I help you? Can I bring you lunch? Can I take care of your house? It's that extra care in a visit. And that's how the Lord visited his people, by giving them bread. So while the beginning of Ruth in the first five verses is darkness and tragedy, and there's spiritual darkness and physical danger and death, Verse 6 brings the first ray of hope. A little foreshadowing, if you will, of the, the hope and the fertility and the harvest that is to come. We need to, if we're going to trust God's sovereignty in our suffering, first of all, we must expect it. One of the problems, and I think it's probably Naomi's problem as we learn later, and I think it's a problem of Christians who blame God and become bitter towards him when we expect this life to be easy. Now, please don't hear me as coming down hard and stepping on toes. But I want us to understand that as sinners in a sin-cursed world, with living among other sinners, there will be suffering, and we ought to know it. It's like a soldier who signs up to serve in a war, and then goes overseas, and then is he surprised when people start shooting at him? He's not. And what does he do? He's been training to shoot back. He's been training his body and his mind to know how to react and how to work with the team. And he's not thrown off by the attack of the enemy. He's prepared for it. And we, as Christians especially, should know that we are going to suffer. So many people might say, I know I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to hope I don't. And we don't take time to prepare for it. And when the suffering strikes, when the loss hits, when the bank account is empty, we say, Lord, where are you? And then we try to figure it out. It's a hard place to be, to try and figure out and try to reconcile with God. I know firsthand it can be done from people in my life, but I also know that it's best to be prepared. 
So maybe right now you are suffering, maybe not. But take the time that God has given you to memorize scripture about God's sovereignty and his love. Maybe look through stories such as, or historical accounts, not just stories, but people that actually lived like Ruth and like others in scripture and see how God provided for them. Instruct your heart, instruct your mind with the truth of God's word. And when that suffering strikes, you'll be like the soldier who's prepared. Now that doesn't mean the soldier's not scared. It doesn't mean that the soldier doesn't get his blood pumping and and gets maybe a little more excited, but he knows it's coming and he knows what to do. Many times we don't take that time and we're surprised. Let me also encourage you that suffering is normal. Elimelech and his family were normal people and they were suffering. Don't think, how, why am I suffering? I must be doing something wrong. That's not the case. Everybody suffers. We sometimes suffer because of our own sin. You know, our sinful choices lead us in a way that causes our own suffering. We've probably all been there once or twice at least. But we also live in a fallen world, right? Natural disaster, cancer, those things weren't in the world when God created it. Sometimes those bring tragedy and others. It's the sinners around us who abuse us or bring us suffering. Well, let me encourage you, while God does not allow suffer, God does not author suffering. Remember, sin is the author of suffering, and God does not the author of sin or suffering. God does allow it. And as we see in verse 6, the, the giving of bread and the, the foretaste, the foreshadow of how God is going to provide in this situation, sometimes we need to wait it out. Be prepared and know that God is in his sovereignty taking care of the situation. God wants us to trust his sovereignty. First of all, we need to expect suffering. But then in verse 7 through 18, we see the second strategy, and that is to exercise love. We need to expect suffering, but we also need to exercise love. In these middle verses of the chapter, we get to listen in on Naomi and as she interacts with her daughters-in-law, but we also begin to hear how she is processing her suffering. How she begins to interpret what's happened to her. We also get to see the response of Ruth. And I think this is important. This struck me as profound and it's just very normal. You probably already know it. We look at Naomi and her suffering. But you know who also suffered? Ruth. You know who also suffered? Orpah. And yet we see different responses in the suffering. It's instructive for us. We see, first of all, Naomi and, and the daughters-in-law leaving in verse 7. They go back to Judah in verse 8. Along the way, Naomi stops and says, daughters, you need to go. And I don't think she's being mean. She says, you need to return to your mother. Your responsibility is not to me first. It's to your, your actual mothers. And then she blesses them. And she says, the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is a very important word in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the English Old Testament. 
but it's from the Hebrew word hesed, and it means God is usually used of God's covenant, God's loyal love. And Naomi says to the, the her daughters-in-law, the Lord deal with you in a loyal, with a loyal love. And we see that the reason she says this is because that's how the daughters-in-law treated her. As the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You have shown this loyal love, this God-like love. And may the Lord deal, deal with you in the same way. As she pronounces this blessing in verse 9, she continues to bless them that they would find husbands. And then she kisses them as if to send them off, to punctuate her words. The Lord bless you, be on your way, kiss them, and her intent is for them to leave. We see that their response is to weep at the end of verse 9, and then in verse 10, that they said, no, we will stay with you. It goes to show how much that word described them. They did have loyal love for her. In verse 10, and then in verse 11, she, for a second time, urges them to go. This time she uses logic. And as we read through 11, 12, and 13, she says, you need to go. I can't provide what you need. You need a husband. I can't do that for you. Even if I were to be married tonight, bear, get pregnant tonight, and have twin sons, would you wait for them to be grown? No, this doesn't make sense. You need to go back. But then we see at the end of verse 13, the first clue she's giving us on how she understands her suffering. She says, for it grieveth me. And that word is the word marar. And it's the word for bitterness. It doesn't just grieve me. It makes me bitter, is what she is saying. It makes me very bitter for your sakes. Why? That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Usually that phrase is, reserved, is used when God goes out against an enemy, when God strikes an enemy of Israel, and his hand is against them. And this is how Naomi views God. He's made me bitter because he has treated me as an enemy. God has attacked me, and she becomes bitter. In verse 14, we see that this has the desired effect on Orpah. She kisses Naomi and leaves. Now, this does not mean that Orpah is a bad daughter-in-law. The comparison between Orpah and Ruth is not good and bad. It's good and better. Orpah has done much for Naomi, but she leaves. And that's what we expect her to do. But Ruth cleaves. It says, Ruth clave unto her. It's probably the image of a hug, but also just she stuck by her side. She was like a bad cold. You couldn't get rid of her. She stuck with Naomi, and Naomi tells her in verse 15, look, Orpah left. She went back to her mother. She went back to her gods. You should go back too. Ironically, it's interesting, Naomi, knowing the one true God, is trying to send Ruth back to her gods, the chief god of Moab was Molech. You're familiar with that. He was the one that, in the worship of Molech, was child sacrifice. Naomi says, go back and be with your god because he would do better to you than 
my God is treating me. And she doesn't say that, but we can read between the lines. We can assume, I think, in a very well way that that is what she's thinking. But Ruth here, again, shows that she deserves that label of loyal love because she strongly urges Naomi, don't send me away. And then she goes on this list, where you go, I Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And then, in contrast to the blessing that Naomi gave her, uh, invoking the name of the Lord to bless her, Ruth invokes the name of the Lord for a curse upon herself. May the Lord kill me and worse if anything but death keeps me away from you. And ironically, by that oath, invoking the name of the Lord and that curse that she placed upon herself, she showed all the more that she was worthy of the blessing that Naomi gave her. And then in 18, Naomi says, fine, I can't convince you. I understand now you're going to stay. And they stopped arguing about it. We need to exercise love in our suffering. We see the two ladies, Naomi and Ruth, and they contrast each other. Naomi in her suffering said, the Lord hates me and just leave me alone. And Ruth says, I will continue to love you. We need to exercise that kind of love. Let me ask you a question. Is it easier to love somebody when your life is easy or difficult? I think we'd probably all say it's easier when our life is easy, right? But let's look at it from the other person's perspective. Is it easier to know if someone is genuinely loving you when their life is easy or difficult? I would say probably difficult, right? Because you know when they are showing you love and they are hurting that they mean it. This isn't just a show. This is I hurt and yet I still want to be an example of godliness to you. This is I still want to show you I care. Many times when we hurt and we suffer, we get withdrawn and we look at our hurt and we reflect on our hurt and we think our hurt is all that there is. Naomi did that. It grieves me. It makes me bitter that God is dealing with me in this way. And instead of looking at her own hurt, Ruth says, I will be loyal to you. I am here to help you. We are stuck with this through thick and thin. In the midst of our suffering, one of the best ways to demonstrate our faith in God, one of the best ways to exercise our trust in his sovereignty is by showing loyal, God-like love to those around us. If we are to trust God's sovereignty in our suffering, we need to expect the suffering to come and prepare for it. We need to, as we just learned, exercise love for those around us. And the final strategy I can give you is from verses 19 through 22. And that is to, to uh, expand your perspective. Expand your perspective. In these closing verses, we learn fully of Naomi's perspective as she lashes out in her bitterness. In verse 19, she comes home and it says of the people that they were 
the, the, the city was moved about them, and it's hard to... And they said, is this Naomi? It's really hard from the, the text to know if they were confused. It, hustle and hubbub. Uh, who is, is that Naomi? She looks different. Or maybe it's an excited, yay, Naomi is back. Is this Naomi? She's finally returned. It's hard to tell if it's confused, if it's excited, or even sarcastic. Is that Naomi? About time you showed up. It's, it's hard to tell. But whatever it is, they, there's excitement of some kind, and they greet her, and they say, is this Naomi? And she lashes out. And that's the best way to describe it, I think, in verse 20. As she has had a whole trip, it's about 80 miles, likely, from where they were in Moab to where they, to Bethlehem. It's about 80 miles, and she had the whole trip to contemplate what God has done to her. And she lashes out and says, call me not Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now Mara is that word marar, which is the word grieveth that she used earlier. God has made me bitter. She says, call, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. This is how God has treated me. So call me bitter. And then she goes on to say, For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. It's interesting. She doesn't say the Lord here. She uses the name Shaddai. Almighty. It's the one, pictures God as the sovereign one. One ruling on a mountain, making everything he wants to have happen. She acknowledges his, suffer, his sovereignty... But that's all she acknowledges. He's sovereign and he allowed this to happen. Therefore, he's against me. She had part of it right. He is sovereign. But she had got it wrong that he is not the author of her suffering. In verse 21, she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me home again empty. I had a husband, I had sons, and now I have nothing wonder how Ruth felt about that, standing right next to Naomi. Nothing, huh? What am I, chop liver? She probably didn't think that. But you get the idea. God's example of his faithfulness is standing right next to her. But her perspective is so inward focused that all she can say is, I have nothing. I have nothing. And then we go on in verse 21, and it says... Why do you call me Naomi? Because you see that the Lord has testified against me. That's the image of a court. He's looked at me and said, she is guilty. Guilty is charged. And then we see also at the end of 21, the Almighty has afflicted me. The Sovereign One has caused me pain. He has hurt me. Naomi's understanding of God and his sovereignty is at best short-sighted and at worst rebellious against the one who is working even in this moment to bring about her provision and her protection. And not only for her, but we also learn at the very end that God's provision for her also provides the line, is along the line of David, which is where Jesus is from the line of David. And that God, in allowing the suffering that she experienced, but in providing for her, also provides for the salvation 
of mankind. She was very short-sighted. She couldn't see past her suffering. And then in verse 22, uh, it just recaps. It's very common in uh, Old Testament literature to recap. Naomi returned with Ruth out of the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. And then this line, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 1 begins with famine and death, but ends with fertility and harvest. Again, this is a foreshadowing of what is to come. The darkest is behind us. Naomi can't see that, though, because her perspective is on my pain. And that's all she can see. We need to expand our perspective. Expand our perspective in contrast to Naomi, who was so focused on the here and now that she couldn't help but blame God. When we suffer, we need to make sure that we understand that our suffering is not only suffering. It's something God is using. We need to, instead of focusing in on that, we need to take some steps back so we can see the whole picture. So we can understand our situation. Not interpret God based on our situation, but understand our situation based on who we know God to be. In his sovereignty, one author has said, there are only two views of history. I think we can personalize this and say there's only two views of the events that happened in my life. One is that God goofs. You think God is goof? Because if you blame him for your suffering, that's what you're saying. God made a mistake. The other view is that God, in ways we don't now fully understand providentially directs every phase of history, including trouble, including suffering, toward his own good goals, which will be reached in his time and his manner. Oftentimes when we're faced with suffering, it's like that the hymn we sang, Rejoice in the Lord, there's shadows. I hurt and I don't know why. And we have the choice. Do I sit on this hurt and blame God and reject Him? Or even though I don't understand, do I turn to the cross? Do I say, I know God loves me because of the cross, and I kneel there and I submit my will? Lord, I don't understand, but I know there's more going on that I don't. I know you know it. I know you are good. Help me to see past my pain Help me to grow through it to see what you are doing. If Naomi had had a correct understanding of God's sovereignty, I don't think she would have responded bitterly. I think it's interesting to note, also, just point this out, that nowhere in the rest of Ruth does anyone call her Mara. Kind of fascinating. We know that God is the author of all scripture. He used humans to write it as well. But God is making a point, I think, by that. Her bitterness was misplaced. She misunderstood. And instead of growing, she became bitter. God wants us to trust his sovereignty, even in our suffering. And we looked at just a few simple strategies that we can accomplish this. Expect suffering, prepare for it. Exercise love to those around you. And expand your horizon, your, your perspective. 
understand that there's more going on than what you can see and trust God's love. A right perspective on God's suffering should help us look beyond it. He is not the author of suffering, but he does use suffering. And that should bring us great hope, shouldn't it? God's not the author of suffering, but he uses it. He allows it to bring growth and bring provision for us and for others. For the Christian, this is our hope and confidence, even if we don't see the good in the moment. For others, though, maybe there's someone here who doesn't, hasn't trusted Christ for their salvation, their eternal security. You think, I, I don't need him, or I can do it on my own, or I'm trying to go about it by baptism or faithful church attendance. For you, suffering doesn't have the same hope. Because for you, the suffering in this life is a fraction of a taste of the suffering for eternity in a life separated from God. Please. And I understand this as, as a friendly encouragement, as a love to you to understand our suffering through the lens of God's sovereignty. Help us understand our, sovereign, our suffering as an opportunity to come to the Lord, to grow in our faith, or maybe God is working in your heart to come to faith to begin with. God's sovereignty can be trusted. He is the Almighty, but He doesn't just rule with a cold iron fist. He rules in the love that was displayed on the cross of Calvary. In our suffering, let us trust His sovereignty. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study the book of Ruth. We thank You for her example of love in the midst of suffering. We thank you for Naomi's example, negative example of how not to respond. Father, we know there are hurting hearts here this morning. We know there are those who are in pain and in hurt. You know each one's situation intimately. I pray that you would help us this morning to not leave embittered by you but you would help us to leave encouraged and refreshed in our souls. Father, I pray that you would challenge those who need challenge, that you would encourage those who need the encouragement, and you would refresh those who are weary. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.